You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Thrive. It's good to have you here this day. We are in our series, Untangling Christmas, and this week I did untangle the Christmas lights. It wasn't that bad. I don't know why, because most of the... Of course, I did throw out some. They were, weren't working again. I still, you know, and I think we talked about this, manufactured obsolescence. So why can't we make a string of lights that actually works more than three or four years? I don't get, right? But anyways, it wasn't that bad. Um, I don't know how the season has been for you so far. Often, Christmas gets very tangled up with all sorts of things, and not just the schedules and the calendaring and the parties and the expectations and the traffic in Southwest Florida. We have avoided shopping, uh, at least at the malls, um, and I think that might be smart, but it's also the tangle of our emotions and our griefs and our losses over the last few years, and uh, personal issues, you know, you name it. There's so much that comes up. This is a difficult time of the year for many people as well, even in the midst of a lot of joy. And what's so, so sad, so ironic, so hmm, counterintuitive, the first Christmas was all about untangling the mess the world got into in the first place. Jesus enters into this world, into the tangled mass the sinew and the sin of this world in such a way as to uh, take it on himself, figure out how to untangle all of our contorted and knotted lives and bring to us peace and joy. And the question is um, how we can experience more of that, what Christ did that first Christmas. Um, as we were starting to consider planning, you know, we do plan our sermons and series here. <laughs> At least we try, you know. Um, it was like coming to the Christmas season, what is it that we need to hear? Where are we getting? And I thought, um, the prophet Isaiah amazes me. And so we're looking at just the first 12 chapters of the prophet Isaiah through this uh, period of Advent and Christmas. And um, we're not preaching on every but I would, uh, I would ask you to consider the challenge of reading through Isaiah 1 through 12. It's kind of a whole section. Some people think it is. Some commentators believe it's kind of a literary section, maybe the first, quote, chapter of the book, if you want to put it that way, or first section of the book. And in it, Many of the famous prophecies that always come up in those Sunday school pageants when you have Christmas uh, pageants as a kid, you know, for unto us a child is born, and a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and a light has dawned, um, you know, that type of stuff. But in, it's in the midst of a very tangled and difficult political system and situation for Israel and specifically for Judah, okay? And... Um, that's what you find out when you start reading the Bible, actually, is uh, God speaks not in kind of abstract, above it all. It's not a di- it speaks into the context of the real world that we live in. And the greatest hope comes in the midst of some of the greatest difficulties when God speaks. Okay? So today, 
we're in what's considered maybe the hinge, the center section, the center um, passage in, uh, that takes Isaiah 1 through 5 and then turns to 7 through 12. And that is what's called the call or th- of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. We're reading the whole chapter. Often, I've heard pastors preach on it, and they just kind of cut off at a certain point in this chapter because, well, it's the nice part. We get to the difficult call part where Isaiah is told, yeah, it's not going to work out. (laughs) And they kind of don't. So we're going to read the whole thing right now. Now, you can follow along. Um, The Bible notes are up, right, Kathy? You, she, she's really good at going to her phone and going to this U version of the Bible app. It's free. And then going to events uh, under the more button. And it should, if you got your location, it just shows up. If you don't have your location on, you know, uh, just type in the zip and it will show up. If you're at home right now, you can do it there too. It's all, it's amazing, the internet, right? And <laughs> it's also confused. Anyway, so um, you can follow along with this. But we're going to read now Isaiah 6, 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated seating upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go. And say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So that's our text today. And we're going to be looking at three W's. Woe. Wow, why? Hopefully you'll remember. Woe. You know, this passage starts in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, Uzziah, he was one of the best kings Israel, Judah ever had. In fact, they hadn't had a good king like Uzziah since the time of Solomon in terms of uniting and the prosperity of the nation 
And Uzziah had been faithful to God, though he was a bit presumptuous in certain ways. There were certain issues in his life as well as any. He was one of the best kings they ever had. And all of a sudden, Uzziah is dead. Their leader. What's going to happen next? They've had some bad kings before. What's going to happen? It'd be similar, I think, in a sense, and some of you may remember in the year that Kennedy was shot and killed. Or maybe for many more of us, not all of us here, in the year that Al-Qaeda attacked the United States on 9-11. What was happening in Israel at the moment was this existential crisis of who's going to be our leader, where are we going forward, and then Isaiah has this amazing vision as he enters the temple of God and sees who's really on the throne and who really matters. When Isaiah saw God's holiness, his holy otherness, his beyond beyondness, which is what holiness really is, and that just the train of his robe filled the temple itself, and God was high and lifted up well above it and throned in glory, and the seraphim themselves could not even see the vision themselves, but covered with two of their wings. They covered their own eyes and just cried out, holy, 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 which never occurs actually anywhere in the entire Hebrew scriptures, except here that there is a superlative upon superlatives, that you repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. It's not just good, good. It is good, good, good. That God's holiness is so holy, ultimately beyond all, beyond anything that we could ever grasp, so different from all of us, absolutely, completely incomprehensible, uncontrollable, untainable holiness, Isaiah cries out, Woe. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah says, Woe. He doesn't say, Wow. Cool. That's not what you need. When we think we want a glimpse of God, and so many people, I'm sorry, in our culture today, they're always just looking for wow moments. You know, beautiful sunset. Wow, God is so good. Or they come and they look for a worship experience, and I'm there too, where a bunch of our college students are going with me, pray for me, (laughs) to passion And we hope to have 80,000 college students from around the country over uh, January 2nd and 3rd in Atlanta at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. We're going to probably have a wow moment. You know, wow, look at this. Wow, great. But we don't really need a wow moment. We do not need a wow moment. We don't need, wow, wasn't the band great? Wow, isn't that cool? Wow, that was so much fun. That's not what happens in the Bible when you encounter the living God. You don't go like, wow, that's great. It's fun. It's woe. It is woe. Moses in front of the burning bush had a woe moment. He felt absolutely inadequate and unable to even understand what was going on and incomprehensible that he should be called by God in any way. The children of Israel had a woe moment in front of Mount Sinai and said, Moses, you go up there. We can't handle hearing from God directly. Even in the New Testament, you see Peter simply having Jesus do a miracle for him, just an easy one of the catch of fish. Peter's response is, whoa, get away from me. 
Whoa, not wow, that was cool, let's do it again. That is not an experience with this living God. We don't need a woe moment, a wow moment. We need a woe moment. <clears throat> and maybe this needs to happen more than anything with American Christians and specifically with pastors. Because we are so full of ourselves. Seriously, we are so full of ourselves. We think we are so confident of telling people what to do and how, and how to be blessed, and how to prosper, and if you just do this, then God will do that kind of talk all the time. You see this in Christianity in the United States, and I just wonder who, is this the God that Isaiah encountered that you are encountering at that moment? Reverend Timothy Keller says, you haven't seen the holiness of God until you see his power and perfection to the degree that all your excuse making, all your complaining about him, and all of your questioning of him falls at your feet pitiful looking to you, realizing that I have no right to question a God like this. I have no right to complain about a God like this. Even the person Job, who has a lot more to complain about than I ever do, when he encountered the whirlwind of God in front of him, shut his mouth. Just shut up. What's amazing is um, what Isaiah says. When he encounters the living God and the temple itself is shaking because of God's presence, it's really kind of funny because probably Isaiah is, um, <clears throat> was a palace and temple professional prophet that had a ministry. Well, this is chapter 6. We're wondering why is it here. If this is his initial call, it seems like he already had been part of the school of the prophets. He was around the temple, around kings, um, was looked to, had a pretty well a good status. And so he was walking into the temple like he usually does any day of the week to enjoy kind of the wow presence of, you know, the sacrifice and the liturgy and the people of God together. And instead, he encounters the living God. He goes to church and encounters God. That's what really needs to happen any time that we gather together. It's not that we just encounter each other and have a great fellowship. What our prayer is often at Thrive is not that you go, wow, that was nice. Wow, wasn't he smart? Or wasn't that band just awesome? But wow, the living God was there this morning. I heard God and his word encounter me. And my response was, whoa, to start with. And Isaiah himself says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Now, what's amazing to me is, why the lips? Have you ever asked that? Why didn't he say an unclean heart? Because that would seem more appropriate, right? Creating me a clean heart, O God, the psalmist says. Why the And I think, um, here's the analogy. Lips are to a prophet what hands are to a surgeon or the mind is to a professor. It's not a, a, um, it's not a place of weakness, but of their strength and their identity. We all have kind of an integrating principle in our life. It's like, well, I might not be, you know, the most athletic 
but at least I'm cute, you know? Or it might be that you say, well, I'm not really good at math, but I'm great at languages. Or it might be something totally, well, I, I'm really not good at abstract, but I'm good mechanic. I understand things, and I can put stuff together. Whatever that integrating principle is for Isaiah, I believe it was his lips and his speak and his profession itself. And that is exactly where Isaiah encounters the holiness of God in such a way that he goes, whoa. What I thought was so great about me is nothing in comparison. You know, later on in his book, um, and by the way, throughout the entire book of Isaiah, then this encounter in Isaiah 6 comes up just in the reference that again and again, Isaiah speaks of the Holy One of Israel as the title that he gives to God, the Holy One of Israel again and again. So later on in the book, in Isaiah 64, Isaiah writes, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Notice he doesn't say, yeah, our bad stuff is really stinks. And for No, everybody knows they've got bad stuff in life. That's not good. But he says, it's my right. It's the best part of me that smells, that's awful, that's garbage, that is thrown away. Paul does the same thing in uh, Philippians chapter 3 where he says, everything that I considered gain to me now I count as loss. And we've talked about this skubalon, the Greek word for manure. Yeah. That's the best parts of him. And that's what he says. George Whitfield, in the first great awakening in the United States, a long time ago, in one of his sermons said, only before the face of God, only a sight of his full holiness can bring you out of your self-righteousness, which is always the last idol taken out of your heart. Until you see it for what it is, you will not trust in Christ. You may turn to him for help. You may make him your example, but you will not trust him as savior until you've repented of your righteousness. Isaiah was repenting of his goodness, of the best quality that he had in his life. He realized how in the face of God, it was nothing. He was dissolved. He was falling apart. He was a pile of rubble before his God. He was shaken to the core. Self-righteousness. <laughs> it's more my problem than I want to realize. Much more. And self-righteousness is taken out of you. You all of a sudden, like Isaiah, he doesn't say hardly anything in this chapter. Hardly anything. Jürgen Moltmann put it this way, I think. He says, a good theologian is a man overcome by God. He speaks of God haltingly and takes no credit for himself. I, wow. Sometimes I think we have to watch, you know, we've got, you know the ministries in the United States, the Christian ministries and how exalted you know, how puffed up. Look at how great we are. The only message that's worthy here at Thrive or worthy really in any Christian church is look at how great God is. It's not about the preacher. It's not about the band. It's not about the membership. It's not about what we're doing in our community, how great we are. We can thank God for all of that, but it's really how great God is. 
It's how amazing he is and what God is doing. Isaiah, the first thing he needs is a woe moment. But then the woe turns into wow. You see, God doesn't encounter Isaiah simply to get his attention or to make him grovel or to feel bad about himself or to fall apart. God's holiness is not about making you feel puny, although that will happen. God's holiness is not content in keeping holiness to himself, but to make those whom he encounters holy as well. Now, this is totally different than what the other religions around Israel were about. In the commentary by John Oswald on Isaiah, it was fascinating. He has studied some of the Babylonian, Sumerian, and uh, Hittite religions, and they also believe in the um, kind of otherness of their God, that you just don't approach God casually. It's not like you walk into one of their religious sites and say, hey, dude, God, I, I'm here. No, you don't treat him buddy-buddy in any form, but what you have to do in order to get worthy to come into God's presence in those religions is to rid yourself of your uncleanness, which is this thing that you can then do, and then when you do it, then God may approach you. You find out in the Bible there's no such thing as that. In the Israel uh, faith, uncleanliness is not a thing that you have to get rid of. It's the absence of the thing that you need. It's the absence of God in your life. And you find out again and again, like in this instance, it's God who supplies what you need in order to bring you into his presence. The whole Old Testament, the tabernacle, all the sac- all of that God sets up to provide for you what you can, how you can enter his presence. He gives you the gift of the sacrificial system, the gift of the priesthood, the gift of... He makes holy those whom he is, by his holiness, being... Do you realize Jesus did the same thing? You know, uncleanness didn't rub off on Jesus. The lepers didn't make him like olives and oops. His holiness rubbed off and communicated with them. That is the religion that we see here in Isaiah, and Isaiah doesn't even ask for it. He doesn't even ask for it. All he says is, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then God himself, through the seraphim, this fiery angel being that worships God purely and perfectly, comes and grabs a coal from the tongs of the altar of sacrifice and atonement where the sacrifice is made and brings it to Isaiah and exactly where he feels his inadequacies, exactly where he thinks his identity has always been is exactly where God touches him and cleanses him and atones for his sin. Do you get it? Do you get it? God doesn't say, okay, so... Let's make a deal, guys. First of all, you do your part, and then I'll do my part. That is not the faith of Israel. It's not the faith of Christianity. God also doesn't say, okay, come on up to my place. and When you get here, then we'll talk. God comes to your place right where you are with his word. 
in just a few moments after the, well, maybe a lot of moments after this message, uh, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper again where God comes to us, encounters us as a living God and Jesus, as he did for his disciples that night, comes to you and says, here I am. This is my body. This is my blood. Here I am. And you have a holy encounter, and he touches you on the lips. That's the wow. Wow. Totally unexpected, not something anticipated, the surprise of the good news, the gospel that is given to us. That is who our God is. He is not content to be holy in himself. He wants to make you holy, wholly his, completely his, separated out from the rest, called personally as he did for Isaiah. So the woe turns to wow, and that becomes the why. That becomes the whole motivation of how in the world does Isaiah say, who will, here I am, send me. The man who just said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, all of a sudden now goes, wow, well, of course, what else can I do? And what's amazing to me is Isaiah doesn't say, wait a minute, okay, so Lord, what does this look like? Can you, um, what's the job description? Can I get an understanding of the hours, you know? What's the pay scale? What's the benefits for me? Can we, do you understand? He just says, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. I think one of uh, James's fra- favorite verses is Romans 12, verse 1 to 3, which is basically, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Basically, it's just a response. It's like, here am I, all of me, with no, like, okay, now can I see the fine print at what this means? What's the payback? And then to hear, right after that, Isaiah hears exactly what it does mean. God says, okay, great. Now you're going to go and preach to these people. They're not going to listen to you. They will reject your message. They'll think you are a fool. No one will pay attention. You won't feel any success in your lifetime. Nobody's going to give you a high five. Nobody's going to give you a compliment. How do you respond to a job like that? (laughs) Often when we get a job, we, we do it not because of just doing the job, because it's purposeful, but because of the rewards the job gives us, whether it's the paycheck or the perks, you know, the vacation days, or it's the applause or the Thanksgiving or the name that we get. Um, the build, we do whatever we do for the sake of something that's a result of what we do, not the actual thing that we're doing. But God doesn't play by that game. Okay? And Isaiah got none of those things. And that's why Isaiah said, wait a minute, you're telling me how, how long do I do this and nothing happens? So in Isaiah 6, 11 to 12, he asks, Then how long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and for places are many in the midst of the land. Isaiah's words would finally be heard when the people were stuck in Babylon. 
and the entire city of Jerusalem was leveled, the temple destroyed, their entire culture, what they knew of their culture, the institutions of their culture all gone. No more sacrifices, no more priesthood, no more king. None. God is not playing just for the first inning or the first quarter or two-thirds of the way through the game to get some perks for halftime. He's playing for the long haul, for the ultimate goal for Israel and for each one of us. Why would God tell Isaiah ahead of time, hey, by the way, <laughs> nobody's going to listen to you. I think that Isaiah realizes your identity is not centered on the results that happen. Your identity is not centered on what you assess of it. Your identity is centered on the fact that I have called you, I have forgiven you, I have redeemed you, I have commissioned you. You know, all of us, including me, have a mix of reasons why we do what we do. And often what I do is uh, I have some set of performance standards as a result you know, of, hey, I want to do a good job. I want to get the grade. I want to get this. I want to get that out of it. I want to get at least a couple of compliments for my students you know, that I'm teaching. I want to see that they succeed. I want to hear a thank you. And um, when I don't get those, when things don't happen the way we want, what do we do? <sighs> don't want to do it anymore. I don't think we've got the why down. I don't think we've got the why down. Viktor Frankl, who lived through Nazi Germany um, and the death camps, observed during this time in the concentration camp itself that a number of people just could not handle it at all. And it's not that their fault. I mean, don't blame the victims here by any means. But he noticed there were some people in the midst that seemed to be able to, to endure all sorts of pain and torture and difficulty um, because they had a deeper hope, they had a deeper purpose, than just the circumstances they were living in. And so after um, World War II, he founded what's called logotherapy, which basically says that when you find a purpose in life, you can handle the sufferings of life. And he basically said this, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Now I'd add to what Frankel says there, it's not just any why that you can have. Okay, But it's the fact that you need the God of the universe to be your why. You need the Holy One of Israel to be the reason. You need the God who covenants, who promises, who comes to you, who cleanses you, who forgives you. The ultimate only one to be the reason why. And when you have that why, even when things don't turn out great, when things don't go your way, you still keep doing what you're doing for the sake of the one you're doing it for. Now, it did pay off after Isaiah's lifetime. And there are few people in history whose na just first name 
is known by so many people around the world because of the hope that that person, the message of that person brings. Isaiah, in a time like we're living in, in this tangled mess, this marasma of all sorts of issues, can bring hope. In fact, we need that why. Jürgen Moltmann put it this way, in a religious experience, hope gets turned around. We realize that God is not simply the point of our hope in heaven, but that we are his hope on earth. Isaiah became his hope to the people, his prophet to speak the words of hope for the ultimate future. For all these wonderful prophecies we're going to hear in the very future, next week in Isaiah 7, and then Isaiah 8, and then Isaiah 9, and Isaiah 11, that are coming up in the weeks before, we're going to find that God speaks his hope through Isaiah. He speaks his hope through every one of us as we are called. We are God's hope in this world. Now, this last week, Tuesday, we had a great meeting here in Estero that you never heard about. And that was all the pastors of all the churches in Estero, at least a representative of every church, was present <clears throat> with the mayor and the um, manager of the city. And um, they want to basically tr see in Estero the 35,000 people here year-round and the 55,000 people in the winter. How can we create a better community? And how can we highlight the, the opportunities that the Christian churches actually provide for this community? What was fascinating is the city manager said that he receives all sorts of data points from Lee Health, and Lee Health surveys to, um, you know, down to the micron, this whole southwest region to find out what are the trends, what needs are there, not just for a medical health, but just public health general with the welfare of society, etc. And you'd think, right, what do you think the greatest needs in our community are according to what they have found in their studies? It's not orthopedics or gerontology. We are average for the nation in the areas that you think, oh, we've got to have a need in this. But we have a three times higher need for mental health services. They have found that there are more people in Southwest Florida, three times more than the national average, that don't have a lot of hope. And actually, the wealthier demographics, the islands, Marco, Naples, you know, all, that's where it's the most prominent. Why do you think that is? Because people come down here to party and to celebrate, and to shop, and to redecorate, and to go out, and to enjoy, and to accumulate trips, and trophies, and trinkets. And it's shallow and meaningless. And all they're doing is avoiding the anxieties, the fears, and the insecurities in their lives. They need a why. We've got the why. We have the why. We have the why. We can truly, I know, thrive. <laughs> we have a God who has faced himself the ultimate despair. We have the God, Jesus Christ, 
who upon the cross said, woe is me, I am dissolved, I am ruined. Who faced the greatest anxieties and fears and troubles of this world so that he brings us through and we are crucified with him and raised to a whole new life who atones for our sin. The judge becomes the one who was judged. The righteous becomes the unrighteous one. The one who is high and lifted up is pushed into the dirt of death. All to give you the reason to live, to hope, to have a, a hope and a future in him. It's all in the name of Jesus who has touched our lips and touched our lives. But it starts with the woe. Then it moves to the wow. And that's why we can have a why and why untangling Christmas can happen as we encounter this living God in the prophet Isaiah. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much uh, for your goodness and grace for this amazing passage that the personal message that was encountering Isaiah actually is one we want to have encounter us, each one of us this morning. You know, Lord, how we seek after entertainment and joy and all these things. And what we really need is just an encounter with you, Lord, that brings us to the point where we realize, (laughs) woe is me. But wow, look at your grace and mercy and how you have forgiven us and redeemed us and work with us and have promised to be with us always, that you are our Emmanuel, the God with us, and that you are the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of our lives that gives us the reason to live. You know our community, Lord, and our world. You know what needs there are right now in this community and world around us, how many people have brokenness and anguish and loneliness and purposelessness right now. We ask this week that we, as we have come into your presence, Lord, that you would move us out in your mercy so that we can be the hope to those around us, that they might be able to encounter the living God through us. We lift up to you, O Lord, um, Bob Beverly, and pray for your healing care upon him. For Amanda, she is now uh, handling three children on her own in Bonita Springs. We pray, Lord, for those who are grieving during this uh, season of joy because of the loss of loved ones, Lord. We pray for your healing presence upon them. We ask more, Lord, you would untangle the mess of our lives, (laughs) that we would become undone like Isaiah, and that you reconstitute us, Lord. You put us back together the way you want us so that we can speak your word. Here I am. Send me. Bless our time, Lord, now as we uh, will continue our worship with receiving our offerings. We thank you, Lord, for those who have been online with us during this time, this moment. We pray, Lord God, that you would truly bring and encounter them where they are, Lord, and have them respond in lives of service and giving as well. We ask that you would bless our tithes and offerings and the needs that we have at Thrive, not for our sake, but for your kingdom's sake, O Lord, that this ministry may grow not for its own sake, but for your kingdom's sake, O Lord. And we pray, Lord God, that you would prepare us Uh, Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us. (laughs) 
We can't say we don't have sin. That would just be deceiving ourselves. But we confess your truth, Lord, that we are sinful individuals and you forgive us our sins and cleanse us for all unrighteousness. We thank you for that promise. So bless us as we now will worship you, Lord, with music, with our offerings, and with receiving, Lord, um, the gift that you give in the Lord's Supper this day. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.